Scott from Exegetical Tools, where we discuss godly practices and gospel resources to help you rightly divide the word of truth. I am glad to have Dayton Hartman here, lead pastor at Redeemer Church in North Carolina. How are you doing, Dayton? Hey, man, uh, I'm good. Uh, uh, Other than I just found out in the last few months that being a church planter, uh, once you want to move into a permanent space, means you've also got to be essentially a general contractor. So other than that, I'm great. (laughs) They didn't teach you that in seminary? Uh, we didn't get that. There was no class on uh, general contracting, no. You know, church and dogma history as a PhD probably doesn't cover that, huh? Um, unless you're like gothic architecture or something. Um, <laughs> so so Dayton okay. is the author of Lies Pastors Believe, new from Lexham Press. He has a PhD in church and dogma history from Northwest University, which is in South Africa, which is not what I think of when I think of Northwest, but you know, it's relative. Uh, and he, he serves <laughs> as an adjunct professor at both Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and Columbia International University. Really glad to have you here, Dayton. Thanks so much for making the time to do this. I'm excited to talk about this book. Hey, man, thank you for having me. I'm excited to have the conversation. And now this is this is a little bit different than a lot of the subjects we we talk about. But to be fair, um, I I feel maybe a little bit more comfortable. So, you know, we'll talk about discourse analysis and we'll talk about uh, the the newest Greek New Testament, etc. And and I always feel just to be honest, a little bit out of my uh, out of my level. And, And but it's it's so good. Uh, to to ground these things in the truth and, and specifically this this gospel truth that we are not what we do we are not how we perform and this is important I think for much of our audience not just in their academic endeavors but also just in their in their pastoring and their preaching and teaching as many of them do or are training to do and I, there are several lies in the book that you throw out there but the second one especially I want I want to chat about is this this lie that no one has ever fed us like you have. Tell me a little bit yeah. about what you mean by that. Yeah, well, so so just in framing the whole book, I'll tell you, just to boil down to that lie, um, I've been in ministry right around a decade and a half now, and just early ministry, and then as I got into, I was in ministry while I was in seminary, I started to notice there's some kind of over-the-top, ridiculous things that um, other seminary students, pastor friends, believed about themselves, their identity. And, and it really kind of struck me, like, man, if they believe that, what, what do I believe that's not true? And started to just kind of come up with this catalog of lies that I believed about myself, my identity as a pastor, my identity in ministry. Uh, and, and then now as a, in the professor realm, uh, see the same things in students. And it's just like, wow, this is, these things are so common. And created this kind of big catalog of, of lies and then boiled it down to the seven that I've seen most common either in my own life, uh, in conjunction with other guys, with students, with pastors I'm friends with. And, um, and, and so in that list of seven, one that seems to be uh, across the board as well would be some of the things we believe about our preaching and our teaching. Uh, I, I think of this lie through the lens of – you remember the old, um, the old Food Network TV show – uh, the Iron Chef. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Man, oh, yeah. it was the best thing on TV. Um, and <laughs> Not if you're hungry. Like, that's true. That's true. And, and and the basic premise of that show was uh, that you had like three contestants, and they all got the same main ingredient, had to come up with an appetizer, a main course, and a dessert. And sometimes it was real lame. It was like pineapple. Well, that's you know not that hard. But then sometimes it would be like squid. And so you get an appetizer with squid, a main dish with squid, and then a dessert with squid. And you know, like squid pudding, squid pie. And then it, it got really fun then, um, you know, just seeing the judges eat it and have to rate it. Um, but, but what I thought was interesting is, is I've kind of reflected over the years of pastoral ministry and particularly preaching and teaching is 
everybody on that show is using the same main ingredient and everyone who preaches uh, expositionally with a Christ-centered hermeneutic, with a drive towards the gospel, we're all using the same ingredient. Uh, we just, based on our gifting, our wiring, our communication style, we maybe arrange the ingredients a little differently. We garnish the plate every Sunday as we preach God's word, maybe a little differently, but we're all doing the same thing with the same ingredients. And, uh, but what's, what's interesting and why I put this line in the book is often we don't think of it that way. We really think that we are unique and we're special. Um, if you don't hate your own preaching, which a lot of guys do, I tend to be more in the realm of, I kind of vacillate between, man, that was good. And then the next week being like, why does anyone listen to me preach? This is so bad. Um, but, but guys who tend to think highly of their preaching, uh, man, they get puffed up real fast and, and start to think that, that God has gifted them in a very unique way, that they're saying something others haven't said. They're doing something that others haven't done. And it's just, it's just not true. And it's destructive to our ministries to believe that it's true. And so wanted to chase that lie uh, in, in this chapter and, and give guys some tools to kind of combat it. Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, I, I think this is deeply, deeply important. And so uh, I'm, I'm thinking specifically of, of those who really do want to take the word seriously, want to do sound exegesis. I mean, that's that's what we're about here at Exegetical Tools. That's what we try to equip people to do. Um, and, and maybe sometimes to the neglect of the presentation, right? And, mm. and so, uh, you know, a counterpoint might be, hey, don't don't forget that people have to listen to you say this and yeah. and they didn't study <laughs> they didn't study it for 20 hours this week but at the That's same right. time you're so right i mean that performance aspect almost of what we do when we preach or teach or present anything you know even in a classroom mm. setting um it, it's so easy to try to read people's feedback i mean i know what that feels yeah. like and and so you know i, I feel like People, you know, you talk about vacillating. You can either just detach completely. I'm just here to say say a thing, and you almost have this Jonah mentality. Like, I got a uh-huh. message. God's going to do even worse things to me if I don't say it. So here it is. Do what you want with it. I don't care. That's right. Or this, man, why, why don't they care? Why don't they listen to me? Or maybe even worse yet, they are listening. They do care. I must be so great. So just to reiterate yeah. what you've already said, already written. And I really appreciated what you had to say um, about just different styles. You know, I read a little bit of that in there and talking about uh, various, uh, you know, well-known guys who, you know, you might want to emulate, but they may be completely different than this other guy that you'd like to emulate. I remember walking away from a, uh, several conferences with just stellar preachers, and you're right, it's it's they they are them up there they're different it has to yeah. do with who they are and their culture and their their context but these same ingredients every time bringing that together and i want to talk a little bit about some of these practical tips that you bring out um the first one that you list is this listen intently and read widely what do you mean by that man it's amazing how quickly we get into um uh, 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 I don't know, almost like a bunker mentality where we only we only take in resources, we only take in sermons, we only read books and commentaries that kind of reaffirm some of our presuppositions about what should be said or what shouldn't be said or what does a text mean. And uh, what I have found most effective in my own ministry is to stretch myself by listening to pastors that I know that I'm, I'm going to disagree with them. And it, I'm going to assume that some of their kind of central theological operating principles are incorrect on, on some, you know, secondary issues. Um, but man, they can stretch me and help me see things in the text that maybe, um, uh, I, I haven't seen because of my own, 
uh, tunnel vision presuppositions. And, and so I, I really think it's helpful for, for those who are particularly in preaching and teaching ministry to read a wide variety of authors and commentators, all, all Orthodox, all believers in uh, you know, the gospel of grace, uh, but to get people outside of your own stream, your own tradition, to listen to preachers and teachers outside of your own stream, your own tradition, j- just to stretch you. To, so you, can, you, you are pulling from a wider, a larger well of information than just, um, I mean, I love him, but you're not just basically rehashing what John Piper has preached for the last you know, three decades or, or, uh, or, or, or what Matt Chandler, his latest series, you're not just redoing that. Um, but you're, you're actually pulling in insights and wisdom from um, scholars and pastors uh, from all across the Orthodox spectrum. Um, it's good for our souls. It, it helps us, it, it, it helps us, I think, fine-tune what we're communicating and, and to make sure that we're, we're not majoring on minors uh, when we preach and teach. Yeah, I hear that uh, PhD in church history coming out. I appreciate that. Um, and, and, and so tell me, tell me this, if you don't mind. I'm hearing you say this is the value of doing this, but especially, and man, I, I know these are broad brushstrokes, but I'm thinking especially of low church guys like the both of us. I'm thinking yep. especially of... Guys who have a preaching, teaching bent, um, especially mm. in church planting. I mean, that's what you're doing. Yeah. Am I wrong in thinking that you are not the norm in church planting? That you care deeply about church history? Yeah, it's it's out of the ordinary. Um, I, I think there is a little bit of a revival in it, and, mm. and so actually, the the book that I, I wrote before this is a church history for modern ministry, and it's basically, if anyone would be interested in it, it it's it's basically a field guide for how our church has assimilated the lessons of church history into our church plant. And uh, I've seen a kind of a revival of interest in church history, but yeah, it's, it's not the norm, but man, it's so valuable. Uh, like even this Sunday, I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to be quoting maybe some from Augustine uh, in, in my sermon. And a few weeks ago, I quoted from Athanasius. And uh, one of my favorite guys to quote from is, is uh, John Chrysostom. And, and, and man, just seeing how, how, People from hundreds, or I mean, really, almost two two thousand years ago, were, were preaching God's word and communicating. That will shape your preaching in the twenty first century, because the stuff the stuff they were spitting two thousand years ago, man, is was way better than anything anyone's preaching today. It's just so good. Um, but but yeah, it's not the norm. But I would argue it should be. That's good, man. I appreciate that. I, I would definitely encourage people to check that out. I know we'll have um, several listening who somehow from the church history camp straight into the biblical studies arena. And, you know, no, I, I, I know we all we all have the same God and the same word. So, no, that's good. But, man, I, I hope people will check that out as well. But um, I, I found that important. One of your other practical tips here, um, and, and I'm going just maybe a little bit out of order here, so so help me out. But you talk about the ingredients, and you talk about, mm-hmm. um, well, you just, you, this is your statement. These are your words. Those of us who are faithful to the scriptures must preach with a Christ-centered hermeneutic. Um, that's something we've heard a lot about. I trust most of my listeners have heard at least some level of that concept, if not having, you know, kind of read in depth on that. How do you define that, and, and, and why do you think this is imperative for faithfulness? Yeah, there are a lot of great books on that. Um, one of them that I would highly recommend, just just as kind of a long form explanation, uh, my friend Tony Morita has written a book. Uh, I think it's called the Christ Centered Expositor. I think that's what it is. Came out about a year or so ago. Um, great, great book. Just kind of walks through the practicality of Christ Centered uh, exposition. 
but for us, in a very kind of snapshot sense, we see the Bible as as being a, a story about God, specifically God dealing with humanity. So we're invited into this story, how he deals with humanity through his son, Jesus. The first prophecies of the coming of the son, Genesis 3.15, and then the rest of the book's really all about him. Uh, and And so... When we read the scriptures and we preach the scriptures on Sunday morning, our preaching and teaching team uh, for, for the, the people known as Redeemer Church, we aim to read the Bible the way that Jesus says in Luke 24 we should, that it's all about him. It doesn't mean we, that every time there's a, you know, there's a tree that we're like, oh, man, it's a symbol for the cross. Or every time there's a rock, well, that's a symbol for Jesus is the rock. So he just, but but we, we see that the, the flow, the grand flow of the narrative of scripture in the Old Testament pointing forward to Jesus, either through prophecy or typology, or just the flow of the narrative building to the coming of the Redeemer. And then the New Testament just really um, kind of explaining who this Christ is, reflecting back on his, 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 his deity and his death, burial, resurrection, ascension to the Father, and now us waiting for his, his return. And, and so what we would, our, our conviction would be as a preaching and teaching team is that I was all of Jesus. Uh, and, and so if we're going to preach his, his word, we don't force it, every, every text, to be specifically about him and some individual part of his ministry or whatever it may be, but that we, we see the whole flow as somehow pointing to him. Uh, in some way, shape, or form. And so we always read the scripture, we prepare sermons with that in view. Again, not forcing it, but just, just with in mind, this is really about Jesus. Um, yeah. No, and I hear, so I hear you saying typology. I hear you saying prophecy. I hear you saying, you know, said the flow of the narrative. I'm hearing like redemptive historical kind of yeah, idea there. That's right. Now, that's right. Um, tell me this, if, if you don't mind us, you know, I don't know if it's so much a rabbit trail as it is, you know, just talking about, the way, the truth, the life, instead of lies, pastors believe, um, right? Cause that's, that's the idea is keeping fixed on Jesus. But yep. so, so tell me this, what's a passage recently that you came to, uh, man, I, I know I'm putting you on the spot, but a passage you came to recently and you said, how in the world do I talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus here? And maybe, you, you know, maybe that's not, <laughs> maybe that's not how you put it, but maybe a little bit, yeah, a little yeah. less readily plain and available to you than other texts would be. Can you think of one? Yeah, you know, we just uh, so so last summer. I think it was last summer. Yeah, last summer we did. Um, just right now, we're actually working through the Gospel of Mark, so that's been that's been real easy uh, for that. But uh, last summer we did uh, the Book of Esther, and uh, there's some places in Esther, man, where you, you see uh, this this just typology all over the place, and then there's some there's some places where it's just like where how does this get me to Jesus? Um, mm. And 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 so I think particularly in some of the Old Testament narratives, we're, we're about to do. Uh, later this year, uh, a study of the life of Solomon, and there are going to be some places that are clearly foreshadowing Christ. And just as I've been kind of preemptively reading through his his Solomon's life, but I, I thought, man, um, I'm not sure how I how I'm going to go from here to the gospel when talking about you know Solomon's maybe how many chariots he owned or whatever it might be. And it's like, wow, that's okay. How, how do I approach this with a Christ-centered hermeneutic? And, and that's where you don't force it. You, you don't make every single image about Jesus. Cause that's not what uh, I'm convinced. That's not what Jesus was getting at when he said it's, it's really all about him, um, but, but more of the flow of redemptive history and, and the heroes of the old Testament are all really foreshadowing the hero Jesus and, and, and things like that are more natural connections rather than, you know, uh, looking at uh, in, in Esther's story, some of just some of the weird things that pop up, or like the furniture in the palace, there's a long description of that, or in, in, in Solomon's story, 
how many chariots he owned and how that points to Jesus. Well, it, well maybe it doesn't. And so we shouldn't force it. But where the text clearly has gospel redemptive themes, then it, then it is pointing to Jesus because it's it culminates in him and his finished work. Sure, yeah. And just even thinking about, I'm thinking about Esther and I'm thinking about this is, you know, the people from whom the king would come. Yeah. God's just, you know, utterly sovereign, very mm. much behind the scenes yep. preservation of that people. And we can see that much you know, through the entire Old Testament narrative is God's right. preservation of a people from whom, uh, you know, the seed of Abraham who's going to bless all the nations is going to come. So, I mean, uh, that that's, and that's not, you're, you're getting it exactly, exactly the right thing here. I mean, that is not what we always think of when we think of Christ-centered. We, yeah. we often think of the typology. We often think of allegory and some of these things. And and sometimes it's there. Um, right, sometimes it is. So, you know, and, and man, someone out there, I'm sure has already done the study, but someone needs to email me someone else's work about Joseph just being as a type of Christ and why, mm. why, and if, you know, maybe I'm wrong here, but I don't think this comes up at all in the new Testament. That's fascinating to me that these mm. apostles who are ransacking the old Testament for images of Christ go, go past Joseph and go, I don't think there's anything here. And, and, and so, <laughs> Yeah, I can't, don't see any parallels here, and I, and maybe I'm wrong on that. And I'd love to hear more about that, but I, I'm so I'm so glad to hear this because it's easy for something like Christ-centered hermeneutic to become just this banner that we wave, but we don't think about it in terms of faithfulness and exegesis yeah. and interpretation. Um, so I, I'm encouraged by that, and I think you're exactly right. You know, this is one of those things where presenta- presentation is great. It's something, mm. you know, you need to think about how you're going to deliver the text of a sermon, but unless you have pointed to the finished work of Christ, you have either, you know, you're encouraging that same lie that so many pastors believe, that they are what they do and what they achieve. Right. Yeah, I mean, if you exactly. turn you turn that text into a moralism and don't think about, well, this is something you can only do with a spirit empowered brand new heart, which can only be given for you through the penal substitution of Christ. I mean, if you miss this, you know, you're creating a whole gaggle of Pharisees or you're just disheartening people. Um, yeah. So, man, I, I, I am passionate. I'm right there with you. I'm so glad uh, for you to have said that. And, and so this is bringing me to kind of a, a more, maybe more functional, more practical, nitty gritty, tangible thing. You talk pretty extensively in this second chapter about writing sermons in community. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? What does that look like? Why do you do that? Give me, give me the whole, whole nine yards with this. Yeah. yeah so, so one of the things that um, I really found that my, my preaching got a lot better when I didn't write sermons by myself, that we have a leadership team every week uh, made up of, of, of men, and, and we have some, some women involved in this as well who uh, take the sermon manuscript that, that I've written, and they provide a lot of feedback before I ever preach the sermon. And we, we have some guys here in our office who will also be researching and kind of studying the passage along, along with me, and, and they'll, they'll come to the table with some insights. And, um, and, and so in, in a nutshell, in a very kind of succinct way, on Wednesday morning, I, I write the sermon based on a full day of study on Tuesday, uh, write the sermon Wednesday morning, and then I, I email it to our team. And uh, by Thursday morning, I've got a ton of feedback. And, man, it's been so helpful uh, in particular because I'm not – I have a firm grasp of Old Testament theology, but in the nitty-gritty of Old Testament kind of 
linguistic nuances and uh, maybe ancient Near Eastern context stuff. I get, I got some of the big picture concepts, but some of the minutia that's just present, man, it's it's just not my wheelhouse. And but we've got a guy who that is, and so he's able to point things out. Man, you've got to make this connection. It's it's there and it's important and it matters. Um, there will be some of the women who read the, the sermon manuscript will say, listen, here, if you want this application to really touch a female heart, it really needs to be rephrased this way or that way. And, um, and then just our guys looking at it through a pastoral lens can give some real good feedback, um, on, on how this is going to further the mission of our church and build the gospel culture of our church or how I'm just completely missing it and, and going off on some rabbit trail that I love. And, and that's, that's the danger when you write sermons in a silo is there, we all have our passions. We all have our kind of sermonic wheelhouse where, man, you can just wax eloquent about this for whatever this subject is, you know, for hours and hours. And we will default to that unless people stretch us out of that. And so having other voices, it's good for the church. It's good for you, uh, your soul. And, and it really does just kind of stretch the application of the text doesn't change the text, but it stretches the application of the text to a much broader audience, and it, it helps ensure faithfulness uh, as you, you preach and research and, and study as well. Man, no, that's that's good. Now tell me this: has this been easy? <laughs> no, um, it's uh, it, it, some weeks it's a real pain, man. Um, <laughs> somebody will say, "I hate this this part of the sermon. I just I, I think it's terrible. I don't think it's helpful. I don't think it." And it's like a part where I was I was I was like, "Man, like I'm really flexing some gospel muscles here. This is going to be great." And and then you know the whole team is like, "This is you got to cut this." Or um, I, I, one of the things that this is helpful for me in is one of my defaults is humor. I, I like joking around and making sarcastic observations and, uh, our team knows to, to watch that. And so if they see something in the, in the passage, they're like, man, you're going to be tempted to make a joke out of this and you can't, this is too important. You, you can't make a humorous observation. You've got to stay serious. Um, and, and sometimes my flesh does not like that. Uh, it, it's not been easy, but, but man, the fruit of it has been good. It's made my preaching better. Our preaching and teaching team, it helps build uh, more preachers faster because they're part of this rhythm of here's how you write a sermon and then here's how you tear it apart and then rebuild it. Mm. And and so it, it's got all this good fruit. And so that makes it easier on the days when this thing you've spent you know dozens of hours working on already, um, people tell you it's terrible and it needs to basically be scrapped and start over. Uh, it, it makes it easier to, to hear that when you, you know the good fruit that it's born. But man, when we first started doing it, it was it was rough. It was it was hard. Um, and I think the people on our team were like, can, "Can I tell you if I don't like something, or should I just be like, you know, you could improve this?" I'm like, "No, you give me the blunt truth. Is this good or is this bad? Is this helpful or is it unhelpful?" And once we got past that initial period of awkwardness. There's still some, some painful moments, but overall, it's just the fruit being produced is so good that it outweighs the sting to my pride or my ego. No, man, I, I can I can imagine that now, even just including my wife when I have uh, preached or taught just that one other voice of someone who's not like me, who doesn't yep. see everything the way I see it. You know, we're not talking about. Well, you took an amillennial approach to that, and I'm historical premill, so I don't know right, if I, you right. know, you know, we haven't actually had that conversation in our home just yet. Um, but, but no, just hearing, and even man, I, I, you're reading my emails with that sarcastic comment, comment, because I was, I'm preparing uh, a sermon in Luke 12, the parable of the rich fool, and I just love, you know, he's, I, I'll, I say, I say to my soul, soul, 
And I just I can't help but think of like Forrest Gump right there, you know. And I want to <laughs> and I want to just bring out kind of the. Uh, you know, if I want to get really technical, the vocatives in the text and how, yeah. you know, how, and, and, you know, maybe you could make a point about that, but either you're going to lose everyone who doesn't care about the vocatives or I'm going to come off as if this is flippant or something. And so it was really funny because I hadn't told my wife about this and we, we heard a sermon on the radio and she went, I hate it when preachers make little side jokes about just what they like and what they don't like. I don't care. Tell me about the text. Mm. And I just went, Ooh, that's like an arrow right into my heart. <laughs> and so, right. Uh, because right. like, you know, a little did she know I was, you know, toying with doing that this coming. And so mm. I, 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 I think the benefits are just obvious. I think anyone listening to this is going to hear the benefits and probably, you know, they're either going to say, let's go implement this or they're going to say, yeah, but that's too much work. It's too much time. So I think it's good for them to hear you saying it has been absolutely worth it. Um, and even your point, you know, it's been it's been worth it to to develop other people who can preach and teach and, and, and helping to raise up leaders just by inviting them into that process. That's got to be huge. And you, you, you've you already touched on this. This is kind of my, my last major question here. You've already touched on feedback and criticism, but just even more broadly, not in just the uh, the sermon writing team, but just more broadly from people in your church or even, you know, friends outside of your church who are hearing and responding to um, your sermons, your teaching. How do you, how do you one discern? Is this, you know, because your flesh is going to want to say they're totally wrong and maybe they are occasionally, but how are you, how are you discerning that? And then how do you, how do you implement then the feedback that you're given outside of the sermon writing team? Yeah, well, I think I think a lot of it just comes down to your posture, and and so if you're believing the lie that that you really are, and I give a couple of stories in the book about some guys that I saw who believed this. I mean, God had gifted them; they're going to be the 21st century Spurgeon or or, or the next, you know, John Piper in, in terms of just influence. And man, they flamed out; they didn't do well with criticism, and it destroyed their ministries. And uh, I, so I think if, if we're avoiding this lie that, that we're doing something unique or that we're doing something out, uh, outside the stream of just what faithful pastors have been doing for 2,000 years, um, then we're going to have a posture of humility so that when somebody comes with, hey, can I, can I give you I mean, something you said kind of offended me or something you said, I, I think you were, you were wrong. Um, I, I think you, you're going to receive it better. Your flesh won't like it. You, your ego won't like it. But but you can receive it and just go ahead and tell you <laughs> what I try to do is just go ahead and tell myself I completely agree with them, but they're probably right. And, and so then I take it back and process it. And man, and sometimes they really are. It's like wow, they're right. I really the joke was that snarky, sarcastic comment was out of line. It, it made much of me and took away from the text. Or um, or, or maybe you know maybe I beat this theological drum a little too hard on, on an area that's kind of well, we really we really don't know. Um, and uh, so I think I think having the right posture uh, in your heart will will help you receive it well. And then just. I think one of the ways to discern is if is the criticism, hey, you took away from the spotlight being on Jesus. Okay, that's probably a valid criticism. You you really you distracted from the application of the text to our, our soul, to our everyday life. Criticism is probably valid. Um, if it's if it's just about you as a person, it's maybe preference and or maybe it's just kind of a a personal attack. <laughs> um, those do come. They're, they're unfortunate. And, or one of the things I actually read recently that, that was really helpful for me is how we don't think of it this way, but usually in our, our congregations, whether they're members of our church or attenders, there's, there are people who have, they have one thing they're really passionate about. 
And if you're not passionate about it, they're going to like give you a hard time. Right. And, um, and see you as maybe being an error because it doesn't come up in your preaching as much as they would like or whatever it might be. And, and, and so there are the, when you see criticisms like that, where, you know, it's just this thing they're obsessed with, well then probably not a valid criticism, but, but if you have a posture of humility, you're more likely by the work of the spirit in your life, you're going to be able to quickly discern, is this legitimate criticism? Most often it is, but on occasion it's not. It's evil, mean-spirited, motivated by the enemy, um, and, and should be discarded. But but by and large, usually if somebody has a criticism, there's probably something to it. Mm, that's that's a good word, and I think we, that ought to be our disposition. Our, our assumption ought to be there's something true about this. Um, and and it's my job to discern that, uh, you, you say this in the conclusion and I just want to, you know, I, I I want people to, to pick this book up and read it. It's, it's written well, it's written easy. It'll be a really nice reprieve from that in-depth technical commentary you've been reading this week. Um, and you say this in the conclusion, pastor, you believe lies, you tell lies, you tell yourself lies. Like every human being, you are quick to recognize lies that others are believing and telling themselves, but you are slow to recognize the lies you tell yourself. We know that to be true. I mean, if we have been in any kind of ministry, any length of time, if we've been a believer for any length of time, we understand that our, the disposition of our flesh is to be deceived and especially mm. deceived in ways that flatter us. And so, yeah. you know, you talk about these bad perceptions we have. You know, the, this is just the Iron Chef one. This is just the second one. But then, you know, there's the visionary, the achiever, the called, the holy man, the anti-family man, the castaway. And I have personally seen elements of each of these things in my own life uh, in a very short tenure of ministry. And I've seen where they can lead if they're unchecked, when they become, you know, all-encompassing identities for people instead of being grounded and rooted in Christ. And I appreciate, you know, just the way this book is laid out with, you know, uh, again, being written well, being written simply, having action points that generally, you know, amount to some form of remind yourself of the gospel and surround yourself with other people who will. Um, especially, you know, I've got the Logos version up, reflection questions with rooms to room to write down some answers. And I see, I see what could be gained by a pastor or a group of pastors sitting down and saying, Hey, let's take seven weeks or let's take eight Mm -hmm. weeks. Let's work through these chapters just together really quickly. Not because these are things we've never, ever heard before. I'm sure there will be some things that will be brand new and fresh, but because we desperately need to hear these things. And we know that if we don't intentionally keep one another accountable to hear these things, then we're going to choose the lie because the lie seems so much more attractive. And so I want to encourage people to pick this up, to to give it a read, to check that out. Um, I'm excited for some of the other works that you've you've got coming up. I'm excited for um, the ministry you're doing at Redeemer. Uh, I'm I'm glad to have been able to chat with you. One of the things that we like to end on most of the time is just tell us what passage of Scripture have you been reflecting on lately at at a kind of a devotional level? Man, I'm always in Romans 5. <laughs> this, I'm, I'm always parked in Romans 5, um, mainly because, and I actually brought it up in a, in a sermon a few weeks ago. In in Mark 7, um, Jesus kind of talks about just the nastiness of the human heart and, and his exchange with the disciples, and he tells them about the human heart being defiled, and here's what it produces, and it's just all this nasty stuff. And and he doesn't, there's no resolution. He's not like, but you guys are great, and you're awesome. He just, yeah, Human beings are really terrible and wicked. And then the scene ends. <laughs> it's, just, it's just over. 
and and but that hard word from Jesus in Mark seven drives me back to just the good news in Romans five of of while we were still sinners, Christ mm-hmm. died for us, and um, that God has shown His love for us in that way that while we're actively sinning, Christ dies for us, and 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 so I'm constantly, basically every time I read anything in scripture about sin, man, it drives me right back to Romans five, just the, the scandal of grace there. So I, I'm constantly parking it over and over and over and over and over again, weekly in Romans five, just because my soul needs it to be reminded of just the outrageous and scandalous nature of grace. Amen. Yeah. And as we're preparing sermons, lessons, whatever it is, studying the word for just our own benefit, if we're, if we're striving to, you know, find, find where is the gospel situated in this text you know not under every rock but as the overarching theme and the main mm. point then we're going to be constantly intaking reminding ourselves that we are not the lies that we believe we are the truth that jesus has spoken on the cross thank you so much dayton this has been fantastic i appreciate you hey man thanks for having me travis it's been a lot of fun mm.